quality. What is at stake? It is a big idea. A new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. My question to you is, in any of your government jobs, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if you have, when was it? What were you told? Well, if I had been briefed on that, I'm sure it was probably classified and I couldn't talk about it. Got out in 1989. We had cataloged 57 different species. We walked over to one side of the lab, and he said, "By the way, we've discovered a base." The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Welcome to Skywatchers Radio. This is Rick Osman, and I'm here tonight with the Jackal, a.k.a. Angel That Espino. is correct. And uh, yes. coming up later on in the show, we're going to have a guest by the name of John White, and we'll be discussing a number of UFO cases. Um, in the meantime, that'll be here, I guess, what, in a half hour or so, right, Jackal? Half an hour, that is correct. In about a half hour, Mr. John White, who is one of the many authors of the book, UFOs and aliens, is there anybody out there? And when I say one of the many authors, now as a, as a few of the people out here know, I had uh, Micah Hanks on the show. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right this time. Micah Hanks. You did well this time. Uh, this Good man. Uh, he was on the show this past Saturday, and he was one of the authors of the book as well. Uh, this book has Stanton Friedman, Nick Pope, Eric Van Daniken, uh, Mary D. Jones, Kathleen Martin, Nick Redfern, John White, Jim Marooney, Gordon Chisholm, and of course Mr. Hanks himself. And uh, it's an amazing book, and I've been reading Mr. White's part all day in the book. And it correlates to some of the stuff that has been going on with us tonight, because we've been talking a little bit off air here about the Rendlesham Forest case and in about a few other cases, as for example the Betty and Barney Hill case, uh, which Mr. White touches upon in his book, and in this part of the book is his chapter deals with the Betty and Barney Hill case and other Famous UFO-related cases, just like that one. Of course, the Roswell case being probably the most famous in ufology. So I'm really excited to have John White on the show, and can't wait to have him on here on Skywatchers Radio. And by the way, we haven't been on on Skywatchers in quite a while. It's been, what, at least two months, Rick? Oh, I was thinking it was 13 years. My hell time flies. Something like that. Yeah, last time you were in high school when we did a show. What, uh, what did no, they, they didn't have internet. Well, they didn't even have computers to speak of when I was in high school, but that's telling my age. something. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. They did, they did not have handheld calculators when I went to school. We used slide rules. Ooh, ouch. Ooh, man. Yes, folks, Rick Osmond is old. Yeah, something like that. But... He keeps in shape, though. I'll tell you what. You don't look a day over 65. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, but honestly, it's going to be really, really neat to talk to Mr. John White here and, and get him on the horn And uh, in the next 25 minutes. I really look forward to talking to him and, and getting his feedback about this book because, like I said, there's a lot of really great people that are involved in this book. Uh, it's just amazing to see what a collection of, uh, of people they could get to write one book. Yeah. And it's a... Uh not only is it a vast collection, it's a very well-known collection, uh, or group, if you will, who have mm -hmm. many books of their own, you know, as individuals. 
Or in the case of Stanton and Car- uh, Kathleen, they have one joint one. I don't, I don't think Mondonikin's right. ever worked with another author. That not that comes to mind anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. Stanton has, and uh, I, I don't know John White's work, but I did a little bit of checking. He's got some stuff out there besides this particular one. So cool. Yeah, and you know what, after reading the chapter, I read it earlier today, and I was reading it again before the show a little while ago, and after going over the chapter, I can tell you, this, this man really knows ufology pretty well. He knows these uh, incidents within ufology, which we've, you know, we as a collective in ufology have been talking about for the last 30, 40 years, uh, 50 years, 60 years, you know, some of the most famous cases within ufology, like we said, Betty and Barney Hill, the Roswell case, the Rendlesham Forest case. Uh, there, you know, the list goes on and on and on, and they all t- touch upon these cases in this book. The one that always stands out to me, though, is the Betty and Barney Hill case, and we are extensively going to talk to him about that because, of course, Betty Hill drew something that really she should not have known about—a star map, a star map that wasn't really verified until eight years after she drew this thing. Right. Well, the so the to, real to me that's very good evidence. The real salient real point about the star map that she drew was that it was. It was from a point of view that you can't get from Earth. Correct. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. Yes. Yeah. How, how does that happen? <laughs> hmm. And she wasn't an astronomer or a cosmologist or any of the disciplines that would be privy to that kind of stuff. She was a social worker. No. Regular woman. Pretty much. Regular gal. Regular gal. Married to a man who was a regular guy. Uh, they were minding their own business, just driving home, and yep, then it happened. I've been up in New Hampshire a couple of times, up New Hampshire and Vermont, and the first time I went up there, I retraced that route, but in the daytime, mind you. <laughs> and it was uh, it was interesting because I was you know going along reading a, a couple of different accounts of the case and getting my bearings from that, and it was pretty easy to figure out where they were and th- where they stopped. Now, where they reappeared on the road is a little more vague. So, Well, there's a lot of stuff that is vague about their story, but the one thing that is not vague is the description of that star map. Right. It, That's pretty balls-on accurate yep. from what I've read. And the other thing that was one of the more interesting aspects of that case, Barney was armed. He had a sidearm with him. Mm-hmm. Not that it's going to do him very, you know, much in a UFO being controlled by aliens. Well, probably not. Not, but really, not going to come in handy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just found that inter- a very interesting, intriguing aspect of the case. He also had some binoculars, which is what he had out rather than the handgun. Right. I would have the handgun out. Myself, personally. No, um, I'd have the aliens. pedal to the metal, but that's just me. I'd have the handgun out, and I'd be having the pedal to the metal. Yeah. At the same time. But the, the other case we discussed before the show, and you and I have a little bit of a disagreement on this one, is the Rendlesham Forest case. And you, yes. and you take for granted that the debunking that it was a lighthouse is accurate. However... If you believe that, you've never looked at a map of the area because the landing site where there was physical trace evidence, incidentally, is deep inside this forest. 
And you can't see that lighthouse from that forest, from inside that forest. Well, here's the thing. Neither one of us of us has actually been to Rendlesham Forest, so uh, our point of view really is kind of skewed because we weren't there. Now, I never said that they didn't see some light, so they didn't see something. My whole thing was, and this is my personal take on the thing, and this is where you and I differed, is the fact, and it's a fact, that there was a story told of to what was seen by uh, Pattinson, I believe his name, Pattinson, if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Jim Pattinson, he had originally said he saw a, a ship or a light in the sky from far away from a distance, and uh, the report was that him and Mr. Barrows had hit the ground and they all ducked as this thing flew over or just kept flying away or it was just at, at a distance. They really didn't get close to it. Then years later, when the story was being talked about and debunked minorly, he came up with a story that he actually touched the craft, that he was close to it, that he was able to sketch it and... That's where he kind of loses me, because some of the sketches, if you look at the sketches themselves, he is sketching an object that he really, from the point of reference that he's looking at, is impossible for him to sketch, the way he sketched them. There, there's no way he could see the top of the ship, and he has in clear detail the sketching. And I believe somebody pointed out in uh, an article that unless he has a really huge stepladder, there's no way he could see that kind of detail. Impossible. So, there's that. And there's the fact that, again, he came up with this story after the fact that he was being debunked. Sure. And on the night, one of the second night, actually, because the, according to most of the witnesses, this happened over a series of three nights. Um, right. The 24th and 25th, or 25th and 26th, 26th, 27th, because it spanned across midnight, each of those, um, around Christmas. And the base deputy commander, who was the officer in charge at the time, was named Charles Halt. And Colonel Halt filed a report at the time. And it went into not only U.S., where we'll never retrieve it, apparently. Right. But it also went into the Ministry of Defense. And it has been retrieved from the Ministry of Defense. Right, but in his report, he doesn't claim to have seen an object up close. He claims that he saw a light from far off, that he and his people saw a light. Uh, they tried to chase it. They couldn't really get close to it. As they got closer, it just got further and further away, or it seemed like it was just further and further away. So, I mean, he never once really claims that he was right up close to it, and he touched it and held it and caressed it and kissed it and saw aliens. Like, none of no, that what he claims, was reported. What, what he states, not claims, states, both in the Ministry of Defense report and in his testimony afterwards, is that he took the base photographer with him, and there were a great many photographs taken, which were subsequently never seen again, which is not unusual in cases like this. You know. That is true. That is not unusual in a case like this. And uh, still, even with that said, I still have a hard time believing that they actually got close enough to an alien ship to actually sketch it the way they said they sketch it. They might have taken some pictures of an object in the sky. I don't doubt that at all. Doesn't mean it was an alien ship, though. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Could've By itself, it doesn't. But when you have um, a couple dozen witnesses converging on it from different directions, it's not a lighthouse, number one. So that debunking claim is out the window, in my opinion. As far as it being in the sky, 
why did it tear up trees on the ground and leave depressions in the soil itself? Well, have you ever seen any proof of these depressions? Are there any pictorial evidence uh, besides people just saying that they saw impressions on the ground? Because, see, I, I'm the type of person, and Rick, you know this pretty well from knowing me now for a few years. I, I like seeing concrete evidence. Yeah, I know if, you do. If somebody, tells me, if somebody tells me, oh, well, yeah, it left an impression, but they have absolutely no proof. That, to me, is no evidence, no proof. It's just hearsay. Yeah. And So, where's the proof? And if they had several hundred photographs, I, I believe Colonel Holt said six rolls of film or something like that. Um were shot on this particular, just on the landing site itself. Then uh, all that went to Air Force someplace and never to be seen again. Copies probably to CIA and a number of other alphabet agencies. Right. you got to remember also, they, they did claim that they saw the lights flashing in a way that lighthouse lights do flash. <laughs> Again, you can't Which, see that lighthouse from deep inside that forest where well, they were. Of, well, here it is. This is an article here that I have. It says, of all the questions that need to be answered about the Rendlesham Forest UFO case, the most significant has always seemed to be the following. Was the flashing lights seen in the forest a lighthouse? This was the first aspect of the case that I addressed once a story appeared on the news world in 1983 October I was quickly convinced by the suggestion of local forester Vince Turcatel that it was an Arford Nest lighthouse within days of the newspaper reporting uh, appearing I visited Rendlesham Forest at night with the BBC TV camera crews and interviewed Vince in the film lighthouse was flashing as seen from the forest so, so there you have so it. So again, you have, you, someone, you, see it from you have someone else writing third-hand information, second-hand information from the forester. So it becomes third-hand. Right, hand but here's the thing. With, this, this is where this is different, Rick. This is where this is different. This person actually took pictures, and you can see the lighthouse from where he's standing, which is where Colonel Holt was standing. You can see it off in the distance. In a night, in the pitch darkness, guess what that's going to look like? A little light in the sky flashing back and forth. Now, the photograph that this man took on the occasion that has been published in various places, but that are times, uh, says here that at, that the times the trees were still in full leaf and the crops of the field had been harvested, quite different from the situation of the dead winter that Halt and his men chased their flashing UFO across the field. Remember this picture that you're going to see, here, and I'm going to show you the link. This is, uh, I'm going to post it in the chat room for anybody who wants to check this out, and I'm going to give it to you directly, <laughs> Rick, so you can also look at this. Uh, you can clearly see that, yes, there's still trees, there's leaves, there's everywhere, because it's not dead of winter. You know, every, the trees haven't died off yet. So you can clearly see that, it, you know, the time of the year that they took this picture, and still, you can clearly see, without a doubt, the lighthouse, exactly in the direction that they were saying that they saw the lights. Okay, let me read. It's let me read paragraph number two from Halt's memo to the Department of the Air Force, dated 13 January 1981, two weeks or uh, two and a half weeks after the incident. The next day, they went back out there. Three depressions, an inch and a half deep and seven inches in diameter, were found where the object had been sighted on the ground. The following night, 29 December 1980, the area was checked for radiation. Beta and gamma readings of 0.1 millirotogens, millirotogens, 
rims were that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Were recorded with peak readings in the three depressions and near the center of the triangle formed by the depressions. A nearby tree had moderate point zero five to point zero seven readings on the side of the tree towards the depressions. So the the physical evidence taken by the uh, base radiation guy, who by the way mm-hmm. was used to measuring radi measuring for radiation leakage because they were illegally keeping nuclear weapons at the site. <clears throat> Nevertheless, so this guy was trained and certified in taking such readings. Colonel Halt right. was apparently pretty good at um, commemorating, you know, con- uh, communicating the events as he saw them. And he was right. And he was the officer in charge reporting to the Department of the Air Force. So you know, if he lied, his ass was on the line. Well, here's the thing. Maybe he didn't exactly lie, but maybe he just made a human error. Uh. Now, summing up here, here's here's why I say that. This article continues on, and it gives a reason as to why Mr. Holt thought that the lighthouse was in the southeast and thought it was an actual UFO. Now, the reason is surprisingly straightforward. It says here, Holt's quarters and office were not at Woodbridge, but at neighboring Benwaters, two miles to the north from there. The Arford Nest Lighthouse does indeed appear in the southeast. This is perhaps the crux of the whole misidentification issue. Halt was conditioned to seeing the lighthouse in the southeast. So when he saw the flashing light virtually due east, he did not think of Orford Ness. Halt's own words, the lighthouse was 30 to 35 degrees off the right. We know that Orford Ness Lighthouse Beacon beamed from the southeast undermine his claim that he reconciled that he recognized the Osford the Arford Nest Lighthouse on the night of the sightings and make it more likely rather than less that he mistook it for a UFO. If Halt and his men saw a second light off the right, this must have been something other than the the actual lighthouse. Most likely it was a ship wash lightship, now replaced by a buoy uh, which is more distant and hence fainter. Halt's tape does confirm that the second light was seen to the right of the main flashing light, although no compass bearing is given and it receives only passing mention, oddly enough, at no stage does anyone on the tape mention seeing a lighthouse, even though the Arford Lighthouse is, by its very nature, the most obvious nocturnal reference point for miles around. Yeah, unless you're in the forest, because you can't really see it. It's all deci- yes. No, well, it's all co- it, you can. No, you can't. The entire forest is coniferous trees. They're evergreens. Yes, but not in the dead of winter. They're evergreens. They don't lose their leaves in the winter. Well, not doesn't really uh, state that here, my friend. I know it doesn't because it would blow the debunking. Mm, I don't know. This uh, seems pretty concrete, if you ask me, and uh, I've read this on several different reports okay, not only on this website. Tell you what, you can run so, your own experiment. I'm going with light. I'm going with Lighthouse on this. Yeah, one. I know you are. You, you would, no matter how much I disproved it, but you can, Wait, you, you haven't disproved it yet. I'll, I'll disprove it to you if you'll take a little trip out into the glades. Okay, as flat as Florida is, you can see for miles, right? 
Right. Okay. Go three miles. Go one mile into the glades and look back towards the Port of Miami Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. You won't see it. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you take a person's word when the story changes? I'm not taking his word. I'm citing Colonel Holt's word. I'm talking about Colonel Holt's word. What has changed about it? His story has changed. Now, it says here, look, it says a footnote, change of story. Following the visit to the site with the TV crew, Holt has finally realized that the lighthouse is not 30 or so degrees off to the right from where he was standing, as he had claimed for so long, but almost in line with the farmhouse in front of him, as my photograph shows here on this website. So he has now changed this story. What he now says is the flashing light was to the left of the farmhouse, and moreover, that its light was reflecting on the farmhouse window, a new detail we have not previously heard until he, of course, came up with the story, because he was debunked. When they realized that it was the flashing light from the lighthouse, he said, oh, well, you know what, it wasn't on that side, it was on the other side. I'm changing my story. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. I don't buy it. Yeah, I know you don't. I don't buy it. If it's true, it should not change. The truth should not change, period. End of story. If the story is changing and it's evolving and people are saying one thing now and a few years later they come up with something completely different or they're trying to cover because somebody's debunking them, then that tells me right there that it's all BS. Yeah. It really does. Okay. We'll go with that. My personal take. Yeah. End of story. Anyway... We're going to have John White on the show here in a few minutes. Uh, we've uh, I've killed enough time with uh, this Randlesham Forest footnote for the day. But, you know, we, we should really should bring this up with John, because I'm pretty sure he has a couple of things he would like to uh, throw in on this whole Randlesham I'm Forest confident. case. But before we do get to, uh, to John, I do have one more story that boggles my mind. I don't know if you've read this, Rick. Uh, but NASA has actually sued Apollo astronaut over an attempt to, to sell a moon camera. Whoa, okay. Ah, that's right. Now, this one is from the U.S. government filed the suit. This is right from the U.S. government. I'm not making this up. They filed the lawsuit against astronaut. Guess who? Guess who it is? Take a wild guess. Um, guess, guess. Don't know. Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Mm. Now, this was filed on June 29th in Miami, of all places, in an attempt to uh, claim a 16-millimeter <laughs> plus data with the camera uh, he was uh, that was used during the 1971 Apollo 14 lunar mission. According to the Washington Post, the lawsuit contends that Mitchell recently tried to sell the camera at an auction. The movie camera from the lunar surface was reportedly going to be auctioned off by British auction house Bonams as part of the uh, space history sale in May. And uh, with a pre-sale estimate of 60000 to $80,000. But Bonham pulled the camera from the auction when they learned of the lawsuit. As Discovery News explained, the suit points to that uh, all the equipment and property used during the NASA operations remain the property of, of NASA unless publicly and explicitly released or transferred to another party. And that NASA had no knowledge of Mitchell being given the camera. And while NASA asserts ownership of the camera in question, Mitchell's attorney, Donald Jacobson, contends objects from the lunar trips to the moon were ultimately mounted and then presented to the astronauts as a gift 
after they had helped NASA on a mission. According to Space.com, Jacobson also stated that NASA approved of the transferring of ownership to the camera to Mitchell 40 years ago. If the camera belongs to NASA, why has it taken 40 years for the organization to attempt to reclaim its property? <laughs> Excellent question. Yeah, not only that, it goes way we, beyond that, too. If, yeah, if it's I their, think we all know the reason why. If it's their property and it had film in it that they developed, how did he get it if they didn't give it to him? He didn't remove the film. Well, that and, is, he didn't remove the film and give it back to him. That's the million-dollar question, though, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you know, I, I think, honestly, this whole thing stems from the comments that Mr. Mitchell gave, or Dr. Mitchell gave, uh, stating his belief that we are being visited. That's where I think this really stems from. Uh, that, and maybe he might have something on that camera that uh, NASA doesn't want us knowing about. Mm. Just maybe. Perhaps. Perhaps. Now, it says here that Ian O'Neill of Discovery News Muse uh, said, So did the Apollo legend deliberately uh, take off with the camera after returning from the moon? Has NASA lost the paperwork that would confirm uh, Jacobson's story? Or were the rules of equipment acquisition a little hazy in midst of the excitement of the manned lunar exploration in the 1970s? Now, conspiracy theorists have already begun speculating that the suit could have something to do with the government trying to silence Mitchell, who has been outspoken about his belief in extraterrestrials. Mitchell is the sixth man to walk on the moon. He has claimed that aliens have visited Earth and made contact, and that many of alleged UFO sightings have been actual alien spacecrafts, including those reported in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, according to Space.com. Uh, but Mitchell claims are not as recent occurrence as you might think. If the government was all concerned about Mitchell's comments, they have had 40 years to address them. Yeah. It is unlikely the government just now concerned uh, is not concerned about potentially incriminating evidence that could be on that 40-year-old camera. But perhaps NASA is just 40 years behind the record-keeping, after all. Uh, this new lawsuit regarding the moon camera came just one week after NASA seized a piece of the scotch tape from an auction house in Missouri that reportedly contained grains of moon dust. It took him a long time to get that also. But yeah, look, 40 years to come up with uh, with a reason to go after this guy. Kind of silly. Kind of. If you ask me. But I'm pretty sure there is an ulterior motive. Just like NASA and with everything NASA does, we're never going to get a straight answer. True. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And unfortunately, Dr. Mitchell uh, lost his chance to make $88,000. Well, not yet he hasn't. It, now, with all the controversy, if he actually gets the paperwork, it'll be worth even more. Hey, look at that. We just found out that uh, Edgar Mitchell is actually going to be on Inception Radio with Jamie on the 28th. Cool. So everybody bookmark that and check that out. That's going to be sweet, having Edgar Mitchell on there. And we should call in and, and ask him about this case with the camera, because I'm pretty sure he's going to be uh, open to actually talking about it a little bit and and giving us details on what's going on with it. I hope Jamie talks to him about it, because this is interesting. Uh, the, 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 the actual government's going after the man. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Anyway, guys, we're going to go on a little break here, and uh, we're going to be back with Mr. John White in about five minutes. So please sit back, relax, enjoy Skywatchers Radio when we return with our guest of the evening, Mr. John White. 
once again, one of the co-authors of the book UFOs and Aliens. Is there anybody out there? Amazing book. Rick, I, when, I, when I'm done with this book, I have to send it to okay. you. You have to read this book. I'll look forward to it. It is phenomenal. You know what the great part about this book is? And uh, it just hit me today. Uh, you know, this is a bunch of authors that came together and wrote this book. So there's a lot of chapters that belong to individual authors. And they're usually kind of small chapters. You know, they're not that big, maybe 15 pages or something like that. If that's the case, we could, I, you know, I could book just about all the authors on the show individually and just have to read that chapter and I have them on. So it's great. I don't have to read an entire book. Reduces just to your kind workload. Of know what's going huh? on. Amazingly so. I'm going to see if we can find more books like this with 15 <laughs> authors on them. That'd just be great. Well, there's one. It, I mean, it makes it a lot easier. There's one that's going to print <clears throat> next month uh, that I have a chapter in. So, but it's not UFO. Related. Oh, very cool. Very cool. And what's that book? It's Pangea Institute's uh, latest, which I think will be out uh, around the middle of September, something like that. I'd have to have to ask the uh, editor what the release date will be. Well, you keep us informed on that because that that sounds uh, interesting. You have a chapter in there, huh? Yeah. Yep chapter about how ancient people cool. navigated the seas nice let me guess did they use a lighthouse no damn you sure yeah pretty sure no lighthouse that's worth a try anyway guys we'll be right back here in a couple minutes so just stick around on sky watchers radio only on psn radio and if anybody wants to call in the number is 786-245-8127 call on in Ask your questions for Mr. John White, uh, but do so at the uh, last half hour of the show, more or less, so me and Rick can have a little time to uh, get to know Mr. White. Yeah. Imagine no nice. longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. All systems are functional. And I'm going to pass the reins to Mr. Jackal, the, the new king of radio. This is the Oz Man, one of the voices in the Jackal's head. Are we alone in the universe? Now, I'm a voice of the Jackal's head. But it's a picture. Is there life after death? I'm Nick Pope, and now I'm a voice inside the Jackal's head. Is the government keeping secrets from us? This is Stephen Bassett, and uh, I am now a voice inside the Jackal's head. Will the Cubs ever win the World Series? <laughs> I am now a voice inside the Jackal's head. And that was Boyd Pie. Who the hell are these voices inside my head? Listen live on the Jackal's head. Find out. Hey, everybody.
everybody, this is Boca Brian once again to tell you about my latest CD of religious comedy bits, Word of Boca. All my smash hits made famous throughout the world. For the, well, not exactly the world. Let's see. Parts of Okeechobee down to Narcea Palander. Well, like I was saying, the most requested religious comedy bits ever to be heard all over your radio for too short a time. You'll get such hits as... You'll get Father O'Toole, Amen, and this all-time Boca classic. They were speaking in tongues, that made me a believer. Yes, it's Word of Boca, about 30 all-time certified aluminum religious hits by Boca Brian, who sits on the middle finger of God while singing about men of the moist cloth. That's Word of Boca, available now at all Peaches, Records, and, uh, I mean, uh, order yours today by clicking on the album cover on SoulGlowRadio.com. Adventures in time and space, transcribed in future tense. The powwow. Countdown for blastoff. X minus five, four, three, two... X minus one. Disorder never sounded so good. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine presents... The Powwow. Weekends at 12. Only on SoFloRadio.com. The internet is not your basement. You can't build a website, dump it into storage, and ignore it every day. The search engines want fresh content. You've got to treat your website content like a business asset. Turn it over to IonLeap. We're an internet marketing agency who helps companies get found by search engines using robust content. Bring your website content to life. Learn more at IonLeap.com. When you're ready to actually lose weight safely and steadily while being monitored by a physician, the weight loss clinic of Dr. Kim Jacobson is there for you. The family medicine practice was established by her father in 1956 and continues as a medical practice that now specializes in weight reduction. Dr. Kim Jacobson joined the practice 20 years ago as both a family medicine practitioner and weight loss specialist. The weight loss clinic utilizes a combination of appetite suppression medication and vitamins to produce great results, usually 3 to 4 pounds per week for most patients. Now you can change your lifestyle while still enjoying your own food, just less of it. They offer a choice of two, three, or four week plans. So whether you just need to lose a few pounds or a lot, the weight loss clinic of Dr. Kim Jacobson can help you. They're located at 5454 Northeast 4th Avenue in Miami, just two blocks west of 54th Street and Biscayne Boulevard. Call them at 305-751-0091. They'll be happy to answer any and all of your questions. That's 305-751-0091. Get started on a beautiful new body today with Dr. Kim Jacobson and the weight loss clinic.
All right, everybody, we are back on PSN Radio, and this is, of course, Skywatchers Radio with myself, Mr. Rick Osman, and now we are honored to be joined by one of the many authors of the great book, UFOs and Aliens. Is there anybody out there? Mr. John White, who has probably one of the most defining chapters in the book just because he covers so many amazing uh, topics within ufology, like the Betty and Barney Hill case, uh, just to drop one in there. Of course, Ancient Astronauts. The Roswell case and all kinds of other neat stuff, Mr. White. Thank you for being on the show with us tonight. It is a pleasure having you thank on. Thank you, sir. Rick. Happy to be with you. Well, I'm Angel. He's right. Yes, I'm close enough. Close it's enough. still good to have you on. Uh, <laughs> we get used to it. it. One of our other co-hosts yeah, got us confused too, so don't worry about it. And he was the co-host, so that's amazing in itself. <laughs> but let me ask you, uh, Mr. White, how did you get involved with this book? Because there's a lot of authors involved in this book, and uh, it, this seems like something that's very complicated to get together. How did you get involved with this project? Uh, very simple. The the editors who put the book together asked me to contribute a chapter, and I was happy to do so. Wow, it was that simple. <laughs> Well, it comes from knowing the editor as well. I've had an extensive ah, that would help. extensive involvement in ufology. In fact, I would say that my interest goes back to 1947 when I, as an eight-year-old boy in Maryland, uh, saw the headlines on page one of that day's the, the paper in July saying that the uh, U.S. Army Air Force had retrieved a crashed uh, flying saucer. That intrigued mm -hmm. me enormously. Well, of course, we all know that the next day the Army uh, retracted its, its statement and said, oops, never mind, it was just a weather balloon. Now, I was only an eight-year-old kid at that time, but it, it intrigued me to think that there might be life on other worlds visiting Earth. And as I got older, I, I deliberately became involved in uh, researching the, the question of life on other worlds and, and UFOs, came in contact with many people who researched the subject or claimed to have personal experience through observations and even later on through uh, contact and abduction. Uh, for, for about 11 years, I actually conducted a weekend-long annual conference called the UFO Experience here in Connecticut. And I drew in speakers from all around the world for it. It was um, a very well-received event. So in the course of that, I got to know uh, the editor at the publishing house, Career Press, who got the idea for this book. He invited me to give a chapter and here we are tonight talking about it. <laughs> well, did Amazing. did he also invite all the other authors? Because it's an all-star cast. Yes, he did. No kidding. It, it was strictly by invitation. Cool. <laughs> well, that, that makes it a little bit easier, I think, uh, when you're putting something like this together. And it really does cover a lot of ground in ufology. Now, the title of your chapter is The UFO Problem towards a theory of everything. Can you expand on this a little bit? Uh, you know, of course, the theory of everything has become a very popular term with uh, a lot of the scientists working on 
uh, you know, things like string theory, for example. Michio Kaku mm-hmm. is trying to work on the theory of everything. Yep. Uh, can you expand for the audience a little bit about what the theory of everything is? Sure. I, I do not mean the theory of everything in the, the grand unified sense of explaining the entire cosmos. I mean only right. with regard to the the situation generally called the UFO experience. And what I mean by that is that when when I review all the evidence, all the cases, all the claims uh, made about it, uh, I find that there is no simple unified explanation of everything. It it cannot be reduced to a a simple uh, answer. I in my judgment there are uh, several distinctly different answers to the question what what is the uf what are ufo's or what is the ufo experience all about and the answers have to do with different levels of reality hmm. so i'm my position is this there are a wide variety of phenomena being indiscriminately lumped together in the minds of the public and even in the minds of many ufologists uh, as they search hopefully for a single unifying answer to the question what is the UFO experience all about my response is there is no single uh, answer to it you have to consider all the cases and when you do then it becomes clear, at least it's quite clear to me, uh, that they can be assigned to different levels of existence, if you will, starting with extraterrestrial. But some of the the UFO uh, cases are better understood as phenomena that are strictly limited to the terrestrial. That is to say they have an earthly origin. And last of all, hmm. the most strange UFO uh, cases are neither terrestrial nor extraterrestrial. They're what the ufologist Dr. Alan Hynek called metaterrestrial. Right. Now, metaterrestrial is, is a term that is pretty much equivalent to metaphysical, but it doesn't have the, the woo-woo factor, if you will. It simply refers to cases uh, that seem to have an origin outside the familiar 3D space-time framework in which you and I are operating as we do this radio show. And typical of metaterrestrial life would be angels and various other what are called celestial beings. That is to say they are not physical. They have the capability of emerging into the physical uh, space-time framework that we occupy, but they, their native state, their site of origin, if you will, is beyond three-dimensional space-time. Could they be beings from just a simply from another dimension, uh, parallel universe, something like that? Absolutely, that's the point. It's not okay. beings who cross astrophysical space in manufactured craft. These are right. these are beings who have probably existed side by side with us here on Earth, uh, separated by sets of dimensions, if you will, for a long, long time. Mm. 
So they would be physical beings in their own dimension, is what you're saying. Not physical to our dimension, but in their dimension, they'll be physical. Uh, that's a way of putting it. I would simply say they're native state. Uh, if if we call it physical, it's composed for, of substance quite unlike the substance that composes you and me. They're not carbon-based, right. but they're made of some other much more refined or subtle form of of energy. That's interesting because, you know, as we discover more and more our oceans here on Earth, we discover life evolves in all kinds of strange and bizarre places mm. where you would think no life exists, and it is all different from everything else we've seen. So there is a great chance that life will develop in many different ways, forms, all across the universe. If this is happening just here on Earth, the way it's happening, space is teeming with life and all kinds of different kind of lives. So th th this is definitely a possibility. Now, you know, let me ask you, the Betty and Barney Hill case, which you talk, we talk about in the book and, and is part of your chapter here, they had a very physical encounter with beings. Uh, do you think that they were taken and maybe taken to another dimension, or were they kept in this dimension when they were abducted? Uh, Are you still with us, Mr. It uh, White? It doesn't look like it. I'm looking at the Skype. Nope. It looks like it dropped a call. Ah, well, let's try to get him back okay. on. Yeah, Skype's been acting up a little bit goofy all night, really. It, earlier wasn't even taking the calls. Now it's not taking the calls again. Um, hmm. Odd. Here, let's do this, because that, that was actually a, a great question, yeah, it was. Too, by the way. And I agree. Damn you, Skype. Uh, let's do this. Let's go on a short break, see if we can fix the issue, because I really want to get Mr. White back on the line here. So let's go ahead and take a musical break, and we'll be back as soon as we get the Skype issue taken care of. I apologize, uh, ladies and gentlemen, who's listening in. Uh, these kind of things happen when you're on live radio, unfortunately. And, uh, right now, only heaven can...
the southern end of India, and I'm near the city of Vincennes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see what we got going here. All right, I think we are live again on Skywatchers Radio, and hopefully uh, we have uh, Mr. White back on the line with us. We're having a little trouble with our Skype for some I reason. It, it dropped the call. At, and I want to apologize, Mr. White, for that. Uh, that's the first time that's ever happened on this show. Amazing technology. You know what it was? We were getting to the truth, and it scared some of the folks out there, I think. And the CIA jumped in. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. It's my contention. I wouldn't doubt kidding. it, actually. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, you know, I had a I had a question that I, I posed to you as we were sadly disconnected, and uh, the question remained. Uh, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill case. This is one of the most important cases in ufology's history. Uh, it's definitely one of the most important cases that I've researched myself over the last few years, and uh, you talk about it in the book and of course we were talking about beings mm -hmm. that might have been from this dimension or another dimension or uh, beings that weren't exactly you know species like we know them but yet they were physical beings mm -hmm. that abducted Betty and Barney Hill do you think that they were abducted and taken to another dimension or were they perhaps abducted by beings from our own realm my sense is that there were physical beings aliens who, uh, as best can be determined by later research, uh, originate in the, the uh, system around the star reticulum, which is about 38 light years away. So it would appear that Betty and Barney had interaction with physical beings, but those beings, to come such a long distance most probably have a means of crossing astrophysical space um, by going into other dimensions. That doesn't mean their native state itself is is extra-dimensional. Right. Well, there there is the Einstein-Podolsky uh, bridge, which, of course, is the, the wormhole uh, theory that we'd be able to travel from one point of the universe to another point of the universe simply by folding space and time. Um, and going through a wormhole. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is all theoretical science. How, how far off do you think it could be that maybe we ourselves one day might be able to do this kind of technology and travel to Zeta Reticuli or in one of these galaxies far, far away? Oh, yeah, I, I really couldn't venture a guess on that, Rick, because uh, the, the gap between what you can do in a laboratory and what you can do out in outside the lab is oftentimes uh, subject to, to fantasy and, and illusion. Um, we've had people on Earth claiming to have free energy devices developed for a long, long time, but uh, I sure don't see them uh, making an appearance in, in new cars. I don't doubt that there are such devices which could tap into the the vacuum of space and and draw power that way, but we're a long way from harnessing that in any commercial application. So as far as yeah, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's funny you bring that up though. I did see recent. Travel. Is that again, please. No. No, no. Continue. Continue. 
I'll, I'll, I thought you were finished, but I'll ask the question after you finish. Go ahead. Okay, I was about to say, so as far as human beings developing and applied technology to cross space through wormholes, I'd say it's probably quite a long time away. And yeah, I, you I know, couldn't quantify that more than saying maybe a few decades. <laughs> if we're lucky, a few decades. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. We're still very far off away from seeing anything like wormholes or anything like that. Uh, but here's here's something that I did see recently. You know, just out of uh, completely off the topic of UFOs for a second, I did see a, uh, a person who had developed a, an engine that worked on compressed air, which blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And he actually had an automobile well, I, that he was testing and, that and all kinds of things. Yeah, there, there are all kinds of far-out physicists and, and uh, mechanics working on new approaches to powering our civilization, and I'm very happy about that because I think any rational person wants to get off addiction to petroleum. But mm. it, no kidding. To make those things commercially applicable and, and available is quite another thing from building a bench model in a laboratory. Yep. The other thing about the, <laughs> and you mentioned relativistic relativistic speeds being impossible for us, the relativity itself is also theoretical. And yes, there have been some experiments right. that seem to, seem to verify it, but the experimental, the empirical data doesn't completely agree with Einstein's relativity. So I don't think we have it right yet. Oh. I don't have any argument with you. Let those who make the claims bring out the, the technology and have it examined by objective sources. Yeah. Well, the other thing, no, the, the relativistic claim that we cannot travel faster than the speed of light um, <clears throat> is still theoretical. No one's actually got right. close to it yet, so we don't know. Right. Well, Einstein's theory was that if we traveled to the speed of light, the moment we passed that barrier, we would become basically immersed with the light. We'd become one with light. We would be essentially be, lose our physical selves and become light itself. No, we wouldn't. We would appear to disappear to the outside observer, but for us, it would all be relative. We'd still be doing exactly what we were doing before we passed that speed. It's to the outside observer that we cease to exist. I'll That's let why you it's called guys well it out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one because I, we, I've heard both sides of the argument on that one, and and uh, you know again it's still an unproven theory. We haven't even gotten close exactly. to the speed of light yet. Uh, the, day, the day we actually get close to actually achieving the speed of light, because remember we just broke the sound barrier not long ago, so the moment we actually get to speed of light. Uh, that's when we can start talking about whether Einstein was accurate or not. But, you know, there is a part of the book here which is fascinating to me, and especially since we uh, had a gentleman on the show here, or on, on the network here not long ago, who just retired, Dennis Crenshaw, who is a proponent of the hollow earth theory. Um, part of the book deals with undersea UFOs and aliens. Um, are you at all uh, knowledgeable of the hollow earth theory and uh, the possibilities that maybe a lot of these creatures and aliens are coming from within the Earth itself? 
I'll say yes, I am consider myself to be very familiar with the idea, and I reject it completely. Holocaust well, there goes that. <laughs> does not make sense in terms of in terms of geophysical uh, research. There there have been many many efforts by scientists to determine the the nature of the interior of the Earth, and that includes bouncing sound and um, yep. down through the Earth. And there's been nothing discovered which indicates any hollow uh, area in in the center of the Earth. Moreover, claims that there are there are entry points at the North and South Poles have been just Debunked. totally disproven by yep. um, overflights ever since Admiral Byrd went flew over the the South Pole in nineteen it was nineteen forty seven or forty eight. And of course satellite photography indicates no such opening. So right. with right. regard to that portion of your question which deals with the hollow earth, I just describe that as, as pseudoscience. But I don't reject the idea that there may be undersea uh, bases for UFOs. Hmm. Well, I I what, would, one take, of the... I would uh, take issue with the part about the hollow being connected to openings. I think it's quite possible. In fact, it's quite likely that there is a void at the very center of the Earth simply because there's less gravitational pull there than there is in outer space. But that's neither here nor there. The openings, I agree well, with you completely. Inject this. Everything I've read about the hollow earth theory it, uh, says that there are openings at the polar, um, at the polar. So you well, proposed you a variation on it, which is indeed interesting to me. Yeah, I, I actually have a treatment about that up on the internet. I'll get Jackal to send you the link. Mm hmm. Okay. It's interesting. I, I do think that there is a possibility, I mean, not so much of there being a hollow earth myself, but that there is a possibility that a lot of these creatures are coming from under the ocean. Perhaps maybe not even so much that there are bases right in the ocean, but maybe within the earth there are pockets uh, of bases right within the earth that are outside of the ocean, and uh, they're just traveling through the earth somehow and uh, to try to, I guess, be... You know, keep everything undercover. Uh, so that's a very real possibility that mm -hmm. these creatures could be hiding out right within our earth, right within our feet. The question is whether they're hiding out in natural formations and whether they themselves are natural um, forms of life for the earth, simply outside the, the recognition of current science, or are they aliens who have come to earth and excavated sites? And with regard to undersea bases, of course, it could be that ETs have established uh, bases there. But the biologist Ivan Sanderson had a different spin on that because there have been so many reports of UFOs being seen by uh, people at sea on ships. Hmm. or even on, on large freshwater bo bodies of freshwater, they've seen UFOs come 
bursting up through the surface of that body of water and then take off into the atmosphere. Uh, so many such reports that Ivan Sanderson came to the conclusion that there may have been a form of life in the ocean which remained there after the life which led up to us um, came out on land. And if that's so, that original form of life in the ocean could have gone on uh, evolving just as we did when we came out on onto the land. And that ocean form of life could be even more highly evolved than us and have a technology that we recognize now as UFOs. So that's one of the possibilities of a terrestrial explanation for some UFO sightings. Not uh, aliens from outer space, but a form of life native to Earth, which is simply unrecognized by, by current science. That's interesting. That kind of uh, reminds me of Yeti and Bigfoot. But yeah, I completely agree. I think that that's a high, highly possible well, uh, scenario. Right, and and cryptozoology, I don't, uh, so far as I know, hasn't even uh, hasn't recognized that possibility yet. But now that you've mm. pointed it out, it could be an additional category of cryptozoology, which is a way That's of correct, saying yeah. unknown forms of life native to Earth. Now, there's another form of uh, of critters. Well, that have been described uh, by many folks, and of course I'm talking about plasma critters. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Martin mm -hmm. Stubbs who in the 90s took footage of the STS mission, the tether uh, that broke uh, the NASA footage that, that really was called a smoking gun for good reason. And uh, in there he came out with mm -hmm. a couple of different uh, scenarios for what he was seeing on these videos, and one such scenario, what he thought was, uh, what he called a critter, was a plasma-like critter. Uh, can you expand a little bit on plasma critters and what exactly they might be? Sure. That's another aspect of the UFO phenomenon, which I think is, is very uh, intriguing, because... <clears throat> It proposes that there is a form of life native to Earth which is neither solid, liquid, nor gaseous, but is, exists in the fourth state of matter, which would be plasma. And these plasma-bodied creatures uh, are really nothing more than a very primitive or low form of life, dating probably from the time before the Earth itself took on solid form. You know, science says the Earth is uh, six, what, 4.6 billion years old. Billion years? So, Something like that, yeah. Well, yeah. The, the oldest rocks are dated on the basis of, of radioactive decay, and they give us a, a dating of 4.5 billion years, stretch it to 5, if you will. But right. all that means is that the date that we can pinpoint is is there in solid rock. What about the possibility that there were forms of life native to Earth before it coalesced into its present solid form? There, there could be fire-based, so to speak, uh, forms of life hmm. which have remained 
in the vicinity of Earth, but not um, not taking on density and solidity the way we humans and, and other forms of life here have done. Nevertheless, according to the research of a number of ufologists, and most notably Trevor James Constable of um, San Pedro, California, there are these, mm -hmm. these plasma body creatures native to Earth who live normally in the upper atmosphere. And they also exist outside the visible portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, which we use for seeing. They live normally in the infrared, below what our eyes are optically capable of viewing. But if you use an infrared camera, or, I mean a camera with infrared film, you can get pictures of them. And occasionally, these these creatures also seem to have a capacity for changing their their tangibility or their density, their materiality, and becoming more solid, if you will. And, and when they do, they pass into the portion of the, um, the light spectrum which allows us to see them. On occasion, human beings have seen or reported seeing UFOs, which they immediately think of as a craft from another planet. But hmm. Trevor James Constable's research indicates they're more likely to be these living creatures, living UFOs, which he simply calls critters. He regards them as gigantic amoeba, very low form of life, which probably date from the history of Earth before it took on solidity. And occult traditions throughout history have have noted these these creatures and, and refer to them as elementals, or one form of elemental. So there's yet another explanation for some UFO sightings, which has nothing to do with created craft from other other planets. Right. Could this be what John Glenn saw when he claimed he saw fireflies? Uh, I'm not aware of that claim, but it, it certainly should be examined from the point of view of Trevor James Constable's research. Uh, his book is a magnificent discussion of all this. It's called The Cosmic Pulse of Life. The Cosmic Pulse of Life. And in it, he also makes the point that there, there do seem to be extraterrestrials from other worlds who have created craft and, and cross interstellar space to come to Earth. What they have in common with critters is that they have harnessed the same energy to propel their create their craft as critters have uh, to propel themselves bioenergetically through the atmosphere at very very high speeds. Huh. That's amazing. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it's completely possible. Like I said earlier, what we're discovering right under our feet in the oceans, on a, almost a yearly basis, we seem to discover all kinds of new things under there. Who is not to say that, uh, yeah, there might be some kind of a plasma-like creature that's evolved right in space itself? Highly possible. It, it is not only possible, it's, it's been speculated by credible scientists uh, 
because speaking generally now, the evidence of science, especially from uh, astrophysics and astrobiology, is that life will develop in the universe not simply where conditions are favorable, but actually where conditions are only slightly less than totally hostile. That is to say, hmm. life seems to be ubiquitous throughout the universe. That's on a theoretical basis because, of course, we haven't actually obtained life forms from elsewhere in the universe unless you want to speak about microorganisms that might be present in the soil from, uh, from the moon or perhaps seen in soil samples on Mars. I'm not sure that that's, that argument has been settled. But nevertheless, generally speaking, science accepts the idea that life will begin uh, arise throughout the universe. And it doesn't have yep. to be in association with the planet. It might be in deep space itself. Right. Agreed. It doesn't yeah. have to be associated with a body of uh, any celestial body. Interesting that you brought up the Martian microorganism meteorite case from, I think it was 1997, 98, someplace in there. Um, I actually had the privilege of speaking to one of the scientists who worked on that in a <clears throat> secondary fashion. He wasn't the principal investigator. He was one of the supporting <clears throat> supporting role people. But he was thoroughly convinced that what they found was biological fossils. So mm -hmm. he had no doubts. And, and I think and I'm, perfectly, <clears throat> I'm perfectly open to that idea. Life is not oh, yeah, only me too. One scientist said, the universe is not only strange, it's stranger than we can imagine. <laughs> True. The other thing about <laughs> Mars, Mars life is the, uh, the methane that has been spotted on Mars. Is It's too high a percentage of the actual atmospheric gases to be accidental or um, small geologic releases. It has to be renewed regularly through a biological process. Aha. Uh -huh. So there may be some uh, microscopic form of life in the Martian soil doing that. Is that yes. what you're leading to? <clears throat> That's the most plausible theory according to some of the folks at NASA and uh, elsewhere, particularly mm -hmm. ESA, who are much more open to talking about it. Mm -hmm. But there's also the possibility that it's not microorganisms at all. It may be macro, and we just haven't spotted them yet. Mm -hmm. There are certainly some anomalous images that show up on a seasonal basis that cannot be explained by frost, whether it's water or CO2 or methane. But uh, they appear to be biological in nature. Yeah, yeah, I've seen footage or pictures from Mars that show trees and some form of vegetation on parts of Mars. Right, but that those forms of life as we know them here don't generate methane. That's that's true too. They are, in fact, more prone to be methanophiles, living off methane rather than producing it. Methanogens are typically fauna rather than flora. 
I'll take your word for it on that one. I'm not too sure on that scientific term. Uh, but what what are the odds, Mr. White, that there will actually be some sort of uh, disclosure in the near future? I know everybody talks about disclosure as a possibility uh, every year, pretty much. Do you think yourself that there will be some sort of disclosure of what the government knows when it regards to UFOs? I, I wish I could give you a positive answer on that, uh, but quite... Quite frankly, I don't think the government is going to tell us a damn thing. There has been so much cover-up and stonewalling, even in the face of perfectly obvious evidence like the Roswell case, that I suspect uh, it will, it will, there will no, not be any sort of official disclosure by any uh, competent government body, whether it's ours or hmm. other other governments. However, I will tell you this, on the, on the QT, so to speak, some government officials have told my former boss, Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, that their own country's uh, studies of the UFO phenomenon have uh, disclosed that ETs are here in craft, uh, and they are in contact with with Earth. Now, that's not to say that they've huh. made contact with with humans in any organized way, but um, uh, Dr. Mitchell is is not shy to say that he has been informed by <laughs> no, he's not credible uh, members of several governments of the world, including the U.K., that uh, ETs are real and they're here uh, from elsewhere in space in contact with Earth. Well, I, the other thing that I would have to comment on what you just said, you used the oxymoron competent government body. <laughs> Keep going. This is going to get funny. <laughs> Well, I just find like it... Like military uh, intelligence? Exactly. <laughs> or, or, or to risk offending my co-host, rap music. Well, that too. Yeah, but it, uh, to say that any of the government agencies outside the military proper, and I, here I'm talking to ground pounders who wear boots, uh, competency is kind of a foregone non-happener. So... In my opinion, and I used to work for him, so there you go. Well, also, who's to say that the government knows everything or that everybody knows what's going on within the government? I'm sure there's uh, a need-to-know basis, and most people within government probably are not in the need-to-know basis. They're just hired hands. Right. So only I a selective few are going to be within the know. I mean, it makes perfect sense. of information and a need-to-know basis. So those who really are in the know... Uh, would be very few in numbers, but even right. among them, there there has been some leakage. There appears to be leakage. For example, the MJ-12 documents, which have been right. uh, purportedly leaked by an inside source over the last uh, decade or, or two, indicating that our own American military intelligence community has been systematically collecting information about crashed 
UFOs retrieving as much as they can, both um, uh, equipment and bodies, and studying them in order to reverse engineer the whole thing and build our own flying saucers or UFOs. You know, there's so a it, piece of footage that came that out. Some of those things sighted in the skies are indeed UFOs, but Ours. ironically, yeah. they're of human origin and piloted by humans. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, that's I that's kind of been my argument on, on a lot of it. One yeah. of those. <laughs> I've had two sightings. Have one you? of them was a large Delta Wing craft that, was, that actually had an F 16 chase plane. And when I say large, this was incredibly large. Uh, no, hmm. no conventional aircraft has ever been built that was a third that size. So, mm -hmm. and wow. the other one I saw was a classic egg shape. You know, no means of, no plan form, no, nothing that looked like an airplane. Well, my one sighting uh, that I consider to be an authentic sighting of an unidentified aerial object was not, uh, took place in 1987 in Pine Bush, New York. It was a light in the sky, but uh, it was completely square, and it was ruby red. Its dimensions uh, are hard for me to estimate, but I think it was perhaps uh, a few hundred yards away from me and above the tree line, slightly maybe 150 feet above above the ground and I saw it for no more than maybe 30 seconds in the company of several other people including my son and a and a UFO researcher now deceased named Ellen Crystal but during that 30 second period the dimensions of that self-illuminated ruby red square light in the sky extended horizontally from uh, about three times its its previous size. It was as if there were dimmed or darkened panels on either end of it, which were turned on, and the the whole thing turned into a rectangle. Then it returned to its square shape, uh, went down behind the tree line, which was on. Uh, and I immediately took off to try in its direction to try to see more, but there was a, a swamp and a fast-flowing river between me and where it was. So that's that's all I really can say about physical perception of something. But it, it sure was unlike any other UFO I've heard described. Understood. I yeah, I haven't seen. I haven't heard any descriptions like question. that myself. Uh, Rick and Angel, I want to add one more comment to your question about disclosure. Sure. There's, an, there's a reason that most government officials would not want to come forward and, and acknowledge this, and the that reason involves violation of the constitutional rights of people such as you and me who have been seriously and honestly involved in the UFO phenomenon researching it. I mean, there, there are cases of missing people and strange deaths which possibly could be attributed to 
government officials uh, taking care of, in quotes, people who found out too much at that time. So it's, it's not beyond consideration from my point of view that there are crimes involved on the part of some government and military officials to keep the public from finding out the truth about UFOs. In the Roswell case, for example, there have been reports by witnesses saying that they received direct threats from Army mm. Air Force uh, military uh, people to mm -hmm. the effect that if they didn't keep their mouths shut, uh, harm could come to them and to their family. The harm wasn't specified uh, as physical, although that was implied, but it, all, it, it right. was specified that it could be loss of, of government pensions and uh, disgraced careers. Yes. You know, I actually heard one eyewitness from Roswell. I can't place her name right now, but she said that when she was a small child, she was a witness to the crash, some of the uh, the wreckage, and she was told very clearly by officials that it is a very large desert out there, and nobody will miss you if you're mm -hmm. missing in the mm -hmm. desert. And they yeah. just left it at that. So, yeah, there have been many threats. Of course, you know, Nick Redfern has a book about the men in black, the notorious men in black. Uh, how, how much reality do you think that holds up to? Do you really believe that there's men in black and, it, and the government would go that far to try to uh, circumvent some people from talking about the UFO phenomenon? Uh, well, when you say men in black, I'm not sure... Uh, that you're referring to what I have in mind, which is that they are um, probably not human. But if you mean That's a possibility. Menacing, menacing humans uh, from military and intelligence community, I would uh, I would not doubt that for an instant. There's there's clearly a very menacing threat implied in a statement that's a large desert out there <laughs> yeah no kidding that that's a direct threat if you ask me uh, personally mm -hmm. now the Roswell case does stay pretty much as one of the flagship cases when it comes to the ufology phenomenon uh, it, it is one of the most talked about cases one of the most celebrated cases one of the most revered cases and yet also one of the most uh, bizarre cases just on the simple fact that the government has switched up their stories about what a dozen or two dozen times now since it happened in 1947 uh, but yet it still many, stays within our close. collective yeah, it's not that far off, but it still stays in our collective as one of the most important cases uh, within all of ufology. Usually, I, I always say, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I'm a true proponent and believer that there was something to the, the Roswell crash. Um, I don't believe it was a weather balloon, personally, myself. No, not at all. That, that story has been totally dismantled by credible ufologists, and the Air Force... Then, then changed its its study and said, "Well, it involved dropping dummies from the desert." Right. And that doesn't hold water either. Yeah, as we know, the dummies weren't even in use until well after 1947. Uh, that's when they actually were being used as test dummies. So mm -hmm. they 
simply weren't around when the right. when the incident actually did happen. Uh, now, there's, of course, reports, I don't know if, if you're aware of this, and I wanted to ask you uh, if maybe you've done any research into this, but there's reports of the Roswell case having more than one crash, or more than one ship that crashed that day. Have you heard any reports about that, and, and what are your thoughts on that possibility? Oh, sure. Stanton Friedman and Don Berliner published a book um, oh, perhaps ten years or more ago uh, I'm trying to remember the name, but it it uh, showed, I think, definitively that there were two crashes that evening, one near Roswell, one about, I think, 70 or 80 miles away in a location called San Agustin, also in New Mexico. Both, both crashes were retrieved. Now, do they do they specifically talk about bodies uh, in both crashes? Because I know there was reports of at least four bodies in one of the crashes. I I don't remember the details of the book. I believe there was a discussion of bodies involved in at least one of the crash uh, crashes. Hmm. But the the plane of That's Santa interesting. was the second the site of the second crash, and it has not been widely discussed. Right. Yeah, that's it's true. It's one of the cases, uh, one of the the parts of this case which uh, really has not been talked about much, uh, which kind of is, that's a little bit telling, if you ask me. Uh, that, you know, why would they not talk about that specific case? It's like a magic act. You know, a magician does a trick with one hand, but yet he shows you the other hand to fool you, and you get you look mm-hmm. at the one hand that is not really doing the trick. That's kind of what I think is happening with with Roswell. Well, let me change gears just a little bit and get your thoughts on some of the other leading cases or more notable cases, if we can use that phrase. Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Um, I I have no reason to to doubt that it was a crash retrieval of a UFO. I'm I'm not expert on that case. I've I've read about it, and I certainly don't buy the, the standard explanation that it was. Um, space junk that the army the army <laughs> retrieved. Yeah, space junk doesn't sit down gently usually. The other one. Yeah, um, that's rare when that happens. Um, the Lenny Zamora case. Uh, again, I'm I'm not I don't regard myself as expertly informed on that, but I have no reason to doubt that. He did, as in his role as a police officer, actually see a UFO out there in the, what was it, Arizona desert? Uh, I believe it was also New Mexico. New Mexico. Yes. Um, I have no reason to doubt that. Why? It, it makes no sense that uh, a responsible police officer would make up such a wild story to, to discredit himself. Concur. That's true. Um, yeah, I agree. And he had to know what the possible consequences were. Of course. Hmm. He didn't yes. profit from it in any way. No, he did <laughs> well, he not. hasn't, no. If anything, um, he's hurt uh, his reputation, like you said, just from being involved yeah. with something but like that. that, too, is part of, part of the, the tactics which the, the military intelligence community uses to... Um, shut up people by creating the idea that 
people who talk about UFOs are crazies or publicity seekers or otherwise untrustworthy uh, in their claims, it, it tends to shut down discussion. People are reluctant to come forward and discuss yes. uh, their experiences for fear of being, um, if not ostracized, at, at least ridiculed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another case that of note would be Travis Walton. Okay, I, I had Travis as a speaker at my conference once, and I'm very familiar with uh, both his books. The the case is a very very strong one, as as far as I'm concerned, and I I have no doubts about the reality of what he reports. Especially interesting to me is the fact, as he reports it, that the little gray abducting beings were under the control of another uh, creature. I say creature, but it was a human-like creature, about six feet with tall with blonde hair and blue eyes, a Nordic type. Hmm. Now, that, so far as I know, was the, the first report of another type of humanoid uh, than the small abducting gray ones, but right. unknown to Travis, there were other reports confirming um, Nordic-type aliens who seemed to yes. be in control of the grays. So I, I accept Travis's account as uh, factual and um, complete. Yeah, Gray Barker wrote a little bit about the Nordics, mm -hmm. or he, I, I don't think he used the term Nordic at that time, mm -hmm. but uh, he just the description was consistent with what we now call Nordics. Um, and Travis are, was not familiar with that with that material prior no. to his own experience. Right, not at the time. No, yeah. It, you know, Travis's his case is one of the uh, the few cases where I look at it and I'm like, man, this it, this is one of the hardest cases to poke a hole in, as uh, uh, you know, a person who is open minded but still is skeptical on a lot of things. Myself being that person, uh, I can't find any ways to poke any holes into the Travis Walton case. It is solid as a rock that case. It really is, and I, I believe mm -hmm. Travis 100. percent I've had him on the show you know we've both had him on our show and uh an amazing person travis walton very yeah. nice man a very humble person and just by speaking to travis you could tell that he's not out for glory or fame or money uh the man lived a normal humble life he worked a regular nine to five job and he retired from it recently so even after his incident he kept working as a yes. normal everyday person he didn't yeah. seek out fame or publicity even though he wrote a book but, of course, the book is really to explain his side of the story, because a lot of people forget when Travis Walton's case happened, when he was dropped back off, it was already a media event. People were already talking about it. He was already yeah. in the news without him even knowing about it. So he got dropped off in the middle of a media blitz, and everybody everybody thought that the crew had killed him at that point. Uh, so I'm pretty sure over the years he wanted to tell his side of the story and kind of, you know, detail uh, exactly what happened to him, and that's the reason why he wrote the book. And again, I completely believe Travis Walton 100%. Mm -hmm. Yes, and after three polygraph tests, the only one he failed was given by an unqualified polygrapher. So, right. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Well, he didn't really fail it; it was more of an inconclusive um, yeah. test, really. It wasn't yeah, but if you, flat if out you read fail, the debunkers, just, they'll all say he was 
you know, he was lying. Well, I don't think oh, he's lying. I don't, and he'll tell you there are a lot of things about the the experience that don't add up for him. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's which, true. Which, yeah. In fact, yeah, he, he said it to me directly. He said, uh, "He said, Angel, I really cannot say a hundred percent that what happened to me was extraterrestrial or alien in nature because I saw human-looking people on the ship." And to me, it could have been some kind of a government experiment that I just walked into. Uh, the possibilities are endless. That's what makes me believe that he is telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And Another he's actually aspect a pr- to his case, which is not unique, but which intrigues me and for which I have no real sense of an explanation, it's this. Before the person... The abducted person is taken aboard a craft. Uh, he or she has a sense of uh, the dimensions, the exterior dimensions of that craft. But once the person is aboard, the adventure, so to speak, involves many, many rooms and long hallways that they walk down to get to another site. And the total dimensions of those are far greater than what would be possible if that craft was just a solid object. I had a case reported to me by a person right here in in my own hometown of Cheshire, Connecticut, a very credible man who was a a pillar of his church, an insurance agent. He reported seeing a craft hovering above a cow pasture, I'm sorry, a horse pasture, here, back in 1968, and as he watched it, it's orig- it was more cylindrical in shape than, than circular, it was about 20 or 30 feet above the ground, as he watched it, it expanded from what he estimated was about 12 feet to 20 feet in length, and then it just took off into the atmosphere, but there's, there's something about the malleability of of the construction of these crafts, which is uh, it, defi- it defies the laws of physics as, as we understand them. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Uh, it, no kidding. You know, the just to get back to the the, uh, the Travis Walton case, um, there was a, a show that he appeared in, and I just wanted to bring this up. Uh, he appeared in not long ago where they tried to debunk him at the very end of the show. And in reality, all they did was just make him look good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with this show that he went on. It's kind of a, like a Mythbusters type of show. Uh, it's a game show where they would put you on the spot, ask you a bunch of questions, and they would have you kind of hooked up to a machine, te- you know, like a lie detector type machine. Mm-hmm. He ended up passing every single question. I'll send you a link so you can see it. It's an amazing video. Uh, he passed every single question honestly. The only one he failed was the very last question where they asked him, I believe the question was, if he is 100% certain that he was abducted by aliens. And his answer was no. And that was an incorrect answer. <laughs> How do you negate a negative. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't understand that one. That's, that, blew, that blew my mind. But an amazing show. Uh, really, and, and again, the Travis Walton case, like the Betty and Barney Hill case, uh, like the Roswell case, it just keeps adding up. And, you know, amazing cases just keep adding up 
up and right. up. But you know, the, the Roswell case isn't the only crash uh, that there's been. There's been many, many crashes. We talked about a few of them, you know, just recently here. But there's been dozens and dozens of crashes that have not gotten reported at all. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they haven't I've, made mainstream. They have been reported to some degree, or we wouldn't know about them at all. But right. uh, another well, abduction case that true. I'd like to draw to your attention, or draw on your experience, and be more accurate, the Pascagoula case. Okay. You, you're familiar you're, with you're it, right? You're asking me if, if I accept that? Yeah, do you have any insights on the uh, two gentlemen who were claiming to have been abducted and the veracity of their testimony and all that s- sort of stuff. Uh, I think I do. I'm, I'm familiar with the case and actually had uh, one of the two men as a speaker at my annual conference. Um, I, I accept that they had this very strange um, encounter on the banks of the Mississippi. I think it was the Mississippi down around New Orleans. No, it's Pascagoula, Mississippi, uh, so it was the seashore. Basically, it was the harbor there. Yeah, and um, trying to recall the, the names of the two involved, one of them was deceased, I believe, when the other one came to my, my conference and spoke about it. But like Travis, he said, I, I wish I could give you a complete explanation of what happened to us, but I can't. We he said, we, his, his friend and he, had the bejesus scared out of them during that event, and they weren't <laughs> thinking in, in objective scientific terms to observe everything and make notes. They were, they were scared for their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember uh, Michael Rogers talking about that. Uh, Mike Rogers talking about that very thing, and uh, Travis then saying, you know what, I don't blame them for leaving. I, I would have left too. Uh, you know, they were all scared, terrified. They were, you know, they thought I was dead, so they did the, the logical thing, and they took off and saved their own hive. Uh, and he thanked them. You know, of course, they had their little uh, personal battles over the first few years after the the incident um, because Travis was a little bit bitter at first that they left him there. But now he's completely changed his stance, and he, he completely understands and doesn't blame them for what happened at all to him. Mm-hmm. The fellow I'm, Nor should whose he. name I, I fail to recall just now is Charles Charlie Hickman. I think that's Thank you. his last hmm. name. One of the, the two Pascagoula abductees. Um, and it makes no sense to me that somebody would make up uh, a fantastic tale like that, admitting his his fear and terror as a way of getting fame and fortune. Neither of which happened for them. Yeah, in a lot of these cases, there's no fame and fortune to be get. The Pasigula incident, the Travis incident. There's more. Uh, it's more of a negative than a fame. Really, you're more infamous than you are famous at this point. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is just well, a, it's a, it's amazing the way things work out when you come forward with information like this. Yes. Well, and it well, gentlemen, have, have we solved the mystery tonight? No, actually, we, we have solved the mystery tonight. <laughs> the uh, the idea of the critters is one that I've toyed with for a long time, and and indeed, even fiction writers have toyed with it for a very long time. Hmm. 
and to my notion, it has not been completely resolved, despite some pretty good arguments for it, both for right, and, and against it. photographic evidence of, of critters as well, given in Trevor Constable's book, The Cosmic Pulse of Life, but he's not the only one yep. who has uh, photographed them. And about half, at least half a dozen others have followed his instructions in the book for photographing critters, and they've gotten positive results. So I, th I think there's a genuine scientific mystery there which needs to be looked at quite apart from our interest in, in ufology. We're actually looking at a new dimension of zoology. Hmm. That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, Mr. Way, we're almost out of time here with you. I know we won't, we won't promise only to keep you an hour here on the show. And uh, you know, Before I let you go, I want to talk about the book again. The name of it is UFOs and Aliens. Is there anybody out there? And your chapter, like I said, is one of the most important chapters within the book. Uh, give us your website address if you have one. Give us any information that you might want to give out to the public uh, before we do let you go for the evening. Okay. I do not have a website. I uh, thank you for the opportunity. <clears throat> I've um, been a, a freelance writer and an investigator of the paranormal for the last uh, 40 or 50 years, and I have some books which your, re your listeners and viewers might be interested in. The, the real focus of my research has been on um, enlightenment, spirituality, and its relationship to the paranormal. Now, in the course of that, I've, I've done a fair amount of work with psychics, investigated all sorts of paranormal things from UFOs and, and ghosts to firewalking and things of that sort. So if people are interested in, in my work, uh, the most accessible books would be The Meeting of Science and Spirit, The Meeting of Science and Spirit, which they can obtain on Amazon, or... Um, what is Enlightenment? What is Enlightenment? That's another uh, book of mine available on Amazon. Excellent. And aside from that, guys, I can only wish you continued success with your own work. And uh, I'm not looking to the government to come clean about this UFO situation, <laughs> but I don't want to see... The research by people such as you and me cease because there's something very profound going on here. And there is. We all want to know and the truth about it. And there are a lot of uh, publications, television shows, radio shows, and other media that make fun of it. But on the other hand, there are just as many yes. that take it more seriously. One last question. Do you know Jim Mosley? No, I do not. Okay. Why should I? You, <laughs> I mean... Uh, <laughs> saucer smear. Oh, oh, okay. Now, yes, I do. <laughs> yes. I, I had some correspondence <laughs> with him maybe ten years or more ago. Okay. Well, he uh, lives in, Jim, in P. West, I believe. Yes, he does. And he also does it old school. Uh, his monthly publication is done without the aid of computers. <laughs> yes, saucer smear. Now I I remember all that. Yeah. 
And so now that I've said I know him, what do you want to ask? Uh, <laughs> well, you said you'd had correspondence with him, so you probably know that um, he doesn't take anything on the surface. He questions everything, which is a good idea. Yes, he does, and I, I yep. encourage that sort of hard skepticism. That's different from uh, rigid uh, cynicism. Too many people yes. are cynical and closed-minded entirely about the UFO experience. Jim asks hard questions, Agreed. but he doesn't dismiss them, dismiss the, the claims without really looking at them. Right. Concur. And Completely that's agree. about all I had. I think you've, you've answered a great many things for me, um, and I appreciate you being here. Hey, it's been my pleasure, guys. Very good. Perhaps we can it's get you a, back. A great honor. Well, Perhaps we can get you back at a later date, and uh, by then you'll probably have another publication out. Um, I'll tell you briefly that my interest is in building bridges between mainstream American values and Enlightenment traditions, because America is in a, a political uh, shooting war, which which will, will never end unless we find something that transcends the different sides of the arguments. And, and that's, that's what I'm researching now. So if that, if that is of interest to you, I'd love to come back and talk with you. Well, we have some other shows on the network that would fit right into that. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. And with that, Mr. White, again, we're almost out of time. There's only a minute here left uh, before I have to let you go. Thank you again for being on the show. It's greatly appreciated by both me and my, and my co-host, Mr. Osmond, hey, uh, who I'm sure I could speak for guys. in this case. It's been fun talking with you. Absolutely. Have yourself a wonderful evening, sir. Okay. Good night to both of you. Good night. Take care, sir. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the great Mr. John White, one of the authors of UFOs and Aliens. Is there anybody out there? Again, uh, an amazing lineup of authors that, that wrote in on this book, Rick. I mean, just uh, when you look down the list, from Stanton Friedman to Eric Van Duniken, Nick Pope, Mary D. Jones, Larry Flexman, Thomas J. Carey, Donald Schmidt, Kathleen Martin, Nick Redfern, John White, Jim Maroney, Gordon Chisholm, and of course, Mika Hanks, uh, who had on Micah. the show on Saturday. Micah uh, Hanks. Yeah, yeah, I always, I always butcher that. Hey, Micah Hanks. Uh, again, just an amazing lineup and a great book. It really is. You really have to read this book, man. You really, really do. You'll really have to send it to me. I really, really will. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> uh, and a number of those names that you mentioned. Um, we we collectively, mostly me, will be um, pressing the flesh, so to speak, meeting them in person at various conferences later year. Kathleen and Stanton mm -hmm. will be in Burlington, Wisconsin, for the Burlington Vortex Conference. Jim Maroney, along with Stephen Bassett, and a couple other folks we've had on this show, Laura Magdalene Eisenhower, right. will be at the... Pythagoras Conference in Louisville, December 16th, 17th, 18th, and I'll be there. So, uh, rock on. 
And uh, I'll try to be at the uh, Vortex conference if at all possible. I mean, I know it's going to be tough uh, getting up there for me because, you know, it is in Burlington. But I will do my best to uh, get up there and uh, see if maybe I could uh, hang out with Rick Osman live in person. Guys, we're going to take a a quick commercial break before we come back and wrap up the show here on Skywatchers Radio. Discount Comic Book Service, where you can save 40 to 75% off on new comics, collected editions, graphic novels, action figures, statues, and other one-of-a-kind items from DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, Boom Studios, Top Cow, Dynamite, and many, many more. Go to www.dcbservice.com for easy ordering and fast delivery. Or you can visit our brick-and-mortar location at 10202-C Coldwater Road in Fort Wayne, Indiana. DCBS, welcome home. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California Gold Rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Adventures in time and space, transcribed in future tense. The powwow. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two. X minus one. Disorder never sounded so good. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine presents The Powwow. Weekends at 12, only on SoFloRadio.com. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com all right, everybody, we are back on Skywatchers Radio for the last five minutes of the show to wrap things up. And, uh, again, uh, a great guest we had on tonight, Mr. John White, one of the many contributing authors to a fascinating book, again, called UFOs and Aliens, Is There Anybody Out There? And, uh, I, you know, Rick, what I love about this book is the fact that it takes... Um, you know, all kinds of different angles of looks when it comes to ufology. It really researches just about every uh, possible case, but it tells you from different perspectives uh, what these cases are about and uses uh, a lot of factual, you know, 
stuff to really uh, talk about these cases, like the Benny and Barney Hill case. Uh, they go directly after the star map uh, info, yeah. which is the most factual part of that case, uh, which, to me, that's the best way to build a case is by actually going directly for the facts. Concur. So very well put together book. Yes, it is. The uh, <clears throat> Where I was going from before we went to break and my connection cut off, I was telling everybody that I'll be at the Pythagoras Conference in Louisville, Kentucky in the middle of December, and right. uh, as part of that, we will also have some tickets available to a couple of lucky listeners to Skywatchers Radio. So, there you go. Nice. As well as a couple of listeners Very to cool. Unraveling the Secrets. There you go. That'd be <clears> nice. Yeah. Speaking of which, who do you guys have coming up this Saturday? Um, I'm going to have to ask my co-host about this coming Saturday. A week from Saturday, we have Scott Marlowe and Denise Stoner. Scott Marlowe, well, both of them are members of the Pangea Institute. And Denise is also a, uh, let's see, I forget the exact title she has, with a pretty new organization called ARIRA, which is um, Research into Aerial Phenomenon. She was for 10 years with MUFON as the Florida dispatcher, so to speak. And she's also Kathleen Martin's neighbor. Very cool. Yep. And Scott, of course, is the very first person to introduce a college-level class in cryptozoology. However, this is not about either UFOs or cryptozoology. This is about... How do you interview a witness and gain clues as to the veracity of their testimony during the interview? Hmm. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. Yeah. That. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to hear. And then on... Good times. On July 30th, we have Brad Steiger, author of, I don't know, about 300 various books. Some UFOs, some cryptozoology, just about everything you can imagine. He has written the book. So, has he written a book about rap music yet? Uh, that definitely is paranormal. Yes, it is. There you go. Uh, me myself, I have Thomas J. Carey and uh, Mr. Jim Marooney coming up on the show in the next uh, couple weeks. On the twenty-third is uh, Thomas J. Carey and Marooney will be on the thirtieth to round off the month. The month. Now, next week I don't have anybody booked yet, but I will be live both Saturday and Sunday night on Jackal's Head. And uh, tomorrow I have a big guest. Speaking of rap music, uh, Out of Sight Radio will be on tomorrow at 11 o'clock with Mr. Thin C from Mo Thug Records, one of Rick's personal favorite groups of all time, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So uh, everybody who uh, is into that kind of stuff, tune in tomorrow. That's, that's going to be a lot of fun with Out of Sight. And that's You're big the, on Bone, aren't you? Yeah, uh, sure. Why not? Uh, actually, as, <laughs> as rappers go, he does okay. But... I, I still like Out of Sight's better. It's just me. Out of Sight's good. Yeah. Soul uh, Rollin'. Once yeah. again, great song. So anyway, we have a lot of good stuff coming up on PSN Radio and the overall Soup Media Network. Yesterday I had a great guest on the Peak Experience. Tony Peak asked me to sit in as co-host. And we had Alan Bates, who is a hypnotist who regresses people Past life, past life regression, and uh, he's okay. rec- he has recently been working with Nick Pope on the Rendlesham Forest case and some of those witnesses. 
Ah. So uh, it it's in the archive on Soup Media Network. Uh, just do a search on Alan Bates, and I believe you'll find it. Is he a master at all at anything? Um, no. Oh, because that'd be kind of funny. Anyway, guys, we will be back on Skywatchers Radio next week, so please tune in for that. 11 p.m. Eastern Time is the time, right here on psn-radio.com. So please look out for that. Until then, keep looking to the skies. Skywatchers out. Good night.